1: And we're back. They're letting us do it another week. Guys, I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra Podcast. It's where we get to everything, and I mean everything, that we didn't have time for on Late Kick Live. That's the show we do on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Live as live can be. Every Thursday night, every Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. But this is the Late Kick Extra Podcast. I roll up all of your questions from the email inbox, joshpate706 at gmail.com, to the Twitter inbox, at Late Kick Josh. To the aforementioned YouTube channel comment section, to the podcast review section, where you guys have very wisely started to ask questions in your written reviews, along with those five star reviews, which we so so appreciate. We're over two hundred now. We take all of that, we ball it up, and we unfurl it right here. It's the Late Kick Extra podcast, and we are going to have a lot of fun here. And we're going to go rapid fire because I got so many to get to, but I don't want to sound like an auctioneer. So. There are a few good ones here, including the first one that we're going to hit on with Matt, and we're going to take our time on this one. Now let me preface. Matt's about to ask something a lot of you are going to get aggravated at. And I'm just asking you, okay, whether you're listening on your phone or in your car or some I know a lot of you, an inordinate amount of you actually tell me you listen while you mow your grass. I'm here for any way you want to listen to this. But don't yell until I'm until I'm done reading this question. Just don't yell. Just sit back. Okay, There's a point. We're going to arrive at a logical conclusion. So, Here's Matt's question. This is in the Twitter inbox. Do you think they should restrict the number of four and five stars each team can I hear you. Some of you are yelling already. Settle down. Come on now. Work with me. Work with me and Matt. Do you think they should restrict the number of four and five stars each team can sign in order to give more teams a realistic chance to compete? Essentially, a salary cap for college football. Now, I don't mean restrict it to the point where you'd have 50 teams competing, But rather, teams with an 80% blue-chip ratio, maybe cap that at 60%. Now, what he means there is a blue-chip ratio is something that we put out every year. Bud Elliott does it for us at 24-7 now. And it's just a ratio of how many teams have more four- and five-stars on their roster than three-stars? We got 15 of them, for instance, this year. And it's the usual suspects. So he's saying put in a system wherein you can't have any more than 60% four- and five-star players on your roster. Uh, He says that would level the teams and spread a little bit more wealth to other teams. So here's how I answered that. In classical debate class form, instead of giving him a long-winded answer, I said, Matt, do you think they should do that? And Matt responded, yes, I do. Even though the top-level matchups will lose some of the high-quality play you see, I don't think that's the biggest issue because college football isn't meant for those who are there strictly for the highest quality of games. That's where the NFL comes in. Those fans look down on college sports. I think more competitive games will be better for college football. Personally, watching Clemson and Ohio State play one or two competitive games a season isn't enjoyable on a weekly basis. Every college football fan talks about 2007 being the craziest year, all the upsets, blah, blah, blah. I mentioned before, I just want to handicap it slightly, not trying to get Alabama and UAB on the same level. I know there are probably a lot of issues and financials that I'm not considering, Matt on Twitter. Now, a lot of you are yelling socialism for college football. Listen, here are the flaws that I see with this argument. Just on the surface, I enjoy a system that rewards you for your success. That's why I prefer the college game over the pro game. I watch both of them, but I prefer the college game over the pro game because I like knowing once I've invested my time and energy, blood, sweat, and tears into building my program, I get more kids who want to come here. And I'm not limited with how many of them I can take. But here's the argument, okay? The argument is essentially, and I think this is flawed, and I'll tell you why. The argument is essentially, okay, man, you got your Alabamas and your Ohio State and your Clemsons and maybe a few other programs, but it's really like a closed club. No, it's not a closed club at all. Here's what it is. It's a hard club to join. And there is that T word that no one wants to hear, time. A lot of times it takes just that time. Because the bottom line is the programs we're mentioning here, Alabama, Ohio State, Southern Cal, Once Upon a Time, and hopefully for them again, these programs have been at this for in some cases, 100 years. And we've got some folks out there aggravated that they can't snap their fingers or put in a a four digit code or something like that. And all of a sudden, they're at the big boy table within five years. That's not how Alabama got there. That's not how Ohio State got there. They've been doing this stuff sometimes decades longer than these other programs have existed. I appreciate that is what I'm telling you. The infrastructure of college football and the longevity of success that a lot of these programs have had, I appreciate that. But at the same time, if you're telling me, well, if you're not already there today, you can't get there. That's garbage. Matt's not saying that necessarily, but a lot of people would say that. And I'm saying that's garbage. Clemson just did it, guys. Clemson wasn't an afterthought by any stretch of the imagination, but what was Clemson, I mean, seven, eight years ago, not that long ago. Let's go 10 years to be safe. What was Clemson? They were a nice, solid program. They were in transition. Uh, You were going to have a head coach that no one had heard of before. People at Clemson weren't all that excited about the elevation of a guy named Dabo Swinney, the head coach, but yet he becomes the head coach, and they weren't a national championship program. How many championships had Clemson garnered before that? How, How many accolades nationally at Clemson Garner. They were a nice program. They were a nice, solid program. Well, they elevated just fine. Are you going to tell me that the, the landscape of college football, there was this seismic shift to where all the advantages shifted Clemson's way? No. They made the right moves. They got the right pieces. That's not the only place that's capable of doing that. Think if you were an alien and you just dropped down from outer space right now. And you, let's say you knew sports, you like sports, but you'd never watch college football. You would look around and you would say, this makes no sense. And I'd say, what's that alien? What makes no sense? Well, you're telling me that teams in places like Clemson, South Carolina and Tuscaloosa, Alabama are dominating a sport where there happen to be teams in Miami, Florida, And there are two programs in Los Angeles, California. Basically what I'm telling you is there are programs in major media markets where there is tons of money and programs in Tuscaloosa and Clemson are dominating the sport. How could that be? Passion, passion and investment. That's how it could be. That's the only logical conclusion that one could arrive at that would explain a program in Tuscaloosa, Alabama consistently outdoing programs in Los Angeles, California. So what I'm saying there is anyone's capable of it within reason. Like you said, UAB is not going to be equal to Alabama, but there are a lot of programs out there that use the excuse of, well, those tier one programs, we just can't catch them. No, you can't catch them overnight, but they didn't get there overnight either it's a lot easier to say, well, this sport's just unbalanced. It's unfair. It's tilted against us than it is to look in the mirror and say, we're not quite as all in as we think we are. We're we're just not quite all in maybe as we think and like to fancy ourselves as being. We got the posters on the wall in the athletic complex and we got the bumper stickers and the t-shirts and we say all the right things in the documentaries and whatnot, but uh, very few places are all in to the degree that it takes to be At that tier one level. But here's what I don't want to do I don't want to punish the programs at the tier one level for basically getting it figured out. I want more programs to figure it out. You talked about the 07 season. What was different in 07? How did 07 happen? It happened organically. A lot of those big programs were down, but the point is there were no checks and balances in place that magically pulled the big boys down to the pack in 07. It just kind of happened that way. Now, I know some people enjoyed having. Programs like Kansas in the running for a national championship. And was that the year South Florida was up there? It was a weird year. Uh, it wasn't my favorite year in college football. We ended up getting a marquee national championship. But I make no bones about the fact that I like the brand names. I want more programs to become brand names. That's what I'd like. But it was really good, Matt. It, it started a lot of conversation, I'll tell you that. Let's move it on here. Uh, Kyle F98 in the podcast review section. How do you feel about Texas this year? Do the new coordinator hires get them to the next step of competing annually for championships? Ah, it's a great big, I don't know, which I know you're not looking for from me, Kyle. I'll I'll say this. I really, I, I think that Chris Ash, for example, coming in as a defensive coordinator probably benefits twofold. Number one, he knows what he's doing. Number two, he probably benefits a great deal as anyone would do. You know, I think Todd Orlando would benefit this year just having a healthier roster. And so Chris Ash is probably going to come in there. And if they're healthier this year, he'll look like a genius that Todd Orlando never was. And in reality, I mean, you can't do anything if your pieces aren't there. So if their pieces are there, that's one thing. I think they feel good about who they have up front defensively. I think they feel really good about leadership, veteran leadership on that team at quarterback and elsewhere. But your sitch on the offensive coordinator side, Ash on the defensive coordinator side, it's just a lot of moving parts for a program that's lost spring. Same head coach, of course, same quarterback, and th- those two elements help. But that week two game at LSU, uh, that's the one I plan on being at. I really, really think they have an opportunity there. Think about what that would do. I know every, probably outsiders write that off as a loss. I don't know that I would just automatically – write that W in pen next to LSU's name. That's a program that's also got a lot of transition there now. So Texas isn't alone on that Saturday afternoon or evening in Death Valley with dealing with some uncertainty. And you'll have one tune-up game, and then you'll be thrown into the fire. And I just... When you got a veteran quarterback you can take on the road against an inexperienced guy, it gives you a chance. If your rosters are close to comparable, which you could call Texas roster being close to comparable to LSU, it's in the same ballpark. This is not Louisiana Monroe coming into Death Valley by any stretch. you got a shot there. What would that do? I mean, I know point spread-wise, it would not be a four-touchdown upset, but I think in the minds of a lot of people, it would be a big upset, and it would announce – to the rest of the Big 12, if not the rest of the country, yeah, Kyle and everyone else, Texas is going to be something to deal with, not just maybe in the Big 12, but in the national conversation this year. Got a couple of Georgia questions here. I'm going to get through those really quick. Thoughts on Georgia's offensive potential this year, the shift and Todd Munkin not having spring to install his system. That's Agent Shield, by the way, in the podcast review. We've talked about this a lot. And there are a couple of videos I've done recently that you can find on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel under the uh, Late Kick playlist. But I think that's the name of the game. How much shift are you willing to commit to knowing you don't have to do it? A lot of programs have to do it. Kirby Smart having that defense he's got this year, they don't have to do it. But they are doing it. I wonder, you know, that Bama game's in week three. If that were in week 10, I wonder how much different Georgia's offense would look. That's just an open-ended question, and this is something we're going to talk about a lot more. I think they have potential. Um, they have questions where they don't usually have them, that being offensive line. A lot of people have mistaken questions for weaknesses. Question marks aren't weaknesses at all. You've got a question with Alabama's quarterback situation this year. Does that mean it's a weakness? No. It just means you got a really good player in Mac Jones, and then you may have a transcendently great player in Bryce Young. So, you got a lot of former five-star talent on that offensive line. you just got to figure out, does Jamari Salyer, for example, does he hold down that left tackle spot? And if so, you're filling in that right tackle spot, and there are a lot of candidates, but there's no lock slam dunk. Even Georgia insiders will tell you right now, we don't know how the right side of that offensive line is going to shake out. We don't even know who the leader in the clubhouse is. So there are some questions, but unlike some programs where there are questions with no answers, There are several potential answers for Georgia. Chase on Twitter, actually, let me get to – oh, there it is. Okay, okay. We had a second Georgia question there. Second Georgia question from OCPD in the podcast review. What's your take on Georgia's defense this year? Two things I think we need are more sacks and tackles for loss. In short, I think this will be the best defense in the country. In a slightly more extended but still not quite long-form response, you did say it now those are the two areas. Not so much sacks. Sacks are great, but they want to pressure the quarterback. QB pressures and hurries. That's something Georgia has not lit the world on fire in regards to since Kirby Smart's been there. And that's something they have worked on religiously. I mean, they have hammered it into everything they do in the offseason. They were talking about it last year. I mean, a lot of us around that program knew that last year that was going to be the make or break. And sure enough, It ended up being the make or break in a couple of games. Uh, Let's move it down the road here just a bit. (laughs) Chase on Twitter. Yeah, this is a good question, buddy. Where have you been working out? I assume the gyms in Nashville have been closed. Luckily, I've been able to use my old high school. I mean, I would have paid a lot of money to subscribe to the Harris County High School weight room here lately. That would have been a six-hour commute for me. But uh, so here's been my setup. Now, I'm lucky. I'm very blessed. I am one of only two people in all of 24 seven sports who has clearance to be in the building right now. So I've been going in the building a fair amount and we have a, by no means do we have a full gym there, but we do have a weight room inside the office. So I've, don't tell anyone, I've kind of been working out in the office at 24 seven sports and just recently, and I mean, very recently, they've started to open some gyms up here. I have not gone back to the gym that I'm actually a member of here in Nashville. But I got to do it eventually. And so that'll probably happen later this week. But yeah, man, that'd, that'd, be, that'd be heaven on earth to have an entire high school weight room to myself now or ever. DSG 33 podcast review section. With today's commitment, this was sent to me Friday, by the way, with a Friday's commitment of Walker Howard for the 2022 class, what are your thoughts on the solidity of LSU's quarterback room in the future? I was on with Sean Fox down in Shreveport the other day and they were talking about this and they were asking about quarterback recruiting. And really, here's what I think people have been waiting on. I think people at the quarterback position, at the wideout position, a lot of positions offensively, but we're talking quarterback here. I think they've just been waiting to see it. One year. Just give me one year. And what I mean by that is, if I'm a quarterback who would love to go to LSU But I'm also being recruited by Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, all the big boys, Oklahoma, Texas. I've seen those other programs put up impressive offensive numbers. I haven't seen LSU do it until last year, and they finally did it. And I'm watching that. And all these coaches have been in my living room and on my phone, and they've been telling me, hey, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And I've been responding to LSU's coaching staff saying, okay, but these other programs have done it. Like I need to see evidence. Well, now they have evidence. And now they can take it into any living room in the country they want to, and they can say, forget about what you used to think about LSU. What you saw last year and moving forward, that's going to be LSU. So my thoughts on the quarterback room is I don't think it's going to be a problem. In the near or mid-future, I don't think it's going to be a problem for them again anytime soon. A lame lowball eleven in the podcast review section. As a teenage BYU fan, the program feels different to me from other programs because of the church affiliation and the independent status. What is the national perspective of BYU, and how likely are they to join a Power Five conference? Uh, The national perception—it's kind of like you said—you right now independent, Mormon Church related. Uh, That's part of the national brand. I think that they are inevitably going to once again be a Power Five member, I would venture to guess, in the next few years. This is not something that's a secret. I mean, their athletic director out there has openly talked about this. I think even in this year, this calendar year, he has spoken about it. It's just kind of a weird dynamic. They have the ESPN deal, an independent ESPN deal, and that keeps you afloat if you want to be a big boy program, but you're not in a Power Five. It looked like they were going to go into the Big 12 a few years ago, but They ended up passing on that. They didn't like what they were getting from the Mountain West Conference, but I think ultimately they will end up in a Power Five program. They've got enough cachet. It's a national brand. Now, when I say national brand, it's national for different reasons, maybe than, you know, Michigan's brand is, but it's a national brand. So I think they have enough pull. Um, Yeah, I do believe that they'll be in a Power Five conference sooner rather than later. Nick Big Bama, podcast review section. How would you define Nick Saban's legacy if he wins another title, will that NFL tenure always be a dark spot on an otherwise golden career? First off, I think he's the greatest head coach in the history of college football. Let me be very clear. That's if he doesn't win another title. If he wins another title, that just reinforces my belief that he's the greatest to ever do it. I do not view, by any stretch of the imagination, Nick Saban's time with the Miami Dolphins as a dark spot on his career whatsoever two things number 1 he left the organization in a better spot than it was when he got there that's not even debatable pretty much even people in Miami who hate Nick Saban have to give you that much but secondly think about this he was there a couple of years i remember i don't remember the exact numbers but i went back and did this for a segment once upon a time uh there there are people who suggest well Nick Saban got out of the NFL cuz he realized he couldn't cut it no he got out of there cuz he didn't like it if you think your two years and whatever record he put up in those two years or three years whatever it was was evidence that Nick Saban was not on a trajectory to succeed in the NFL i remember going back and doing a comparative analysis one time you realize Saban had a better record in the years that he was at Miami than the first two or three years whatever it was of Bill Belichick's career and Bill Parcells' career. So Saban was at least on a better early trajectory than a couple of those names. And as I remember, as I recall, I'm no NFL expert, Belichick ended up doing pretty well for himself. So did Parcells. Uh, One of them still at it, I believe, somewhere up in New England. So by what stretch is that a failure? He didn't leave the way people wanted him to leave. And he gave you, something at the beginning of a month saying, I'm not going to take a job. And then he ended up taking the job. And if you want to downplay that, or if you want to look down on that, that's fine. That has nothing to do with his acumen as a coach. We're talking about a coach here. The guy probably said something he shouldn't have said in a press conference, but there are a million irons in the fire and a million different wheels moving during those times. And to be honest with you, I never criticized him for it because I'm not so sure he didn't handle it the exact same way I would have handled it. And most other people would have handled it if you were in that actual position because it's a no-win position. So I, I think it's the best in the history of college football. That's what I think. Baseball nut six in the podcast review. Give me some sneaky teams nobody's talking about who could wind up grabbing a college football playoff spot. I'll give you a couple of them. I gave you one last week, I believe it was. I gave you North Carolina. Keep in mind, this is not an official prediction, but you asked for sneaky teams. I'm going to give you three of them. I've given you two already. North Carolina is a team that I believe is positioned with two possible ways to make the playoff. If they go undefeated, they beat Clemson in the ACC championship game, of course they'd be in. If they lost a game and still beat Clemson in the ACC title game, they'd be in. But there's another one. This one probably interests me more. What if they go undefeated? And this sounds crazy. Just follow me. What if North Carolina goes undefeated? and they go to the ACC championship game, and they lose a competitive game against Clemson, and they're a one-loss, whatever their ranking is, they're a one-loss division champion. you got to pay attention to who their out-of-conference opponents are. You're thinking to yourself, nope, if you play in that garbage conference called the ACC, you have to be undefeated and be a conference champ, or you're not making the playoff. Well, in most years with most teams, that's true. It may be true this year with North Carolina. But they don't play a couple of high school teams as tune-up games in their out-of-conference slate this year. They go to Central Florida, and they play Auburn in Atlanta. Those would be two bona fide top-20 caliber wins for them, at the very least. And so if they have that, and then one or two teams just manage a top-25 ranking, nothing too crazy, on their conference schedule, and they beat all those teams – they could end up in a situation where they've got several quality wins at the end of the year and they, they lose to maybe a one seed in Clemson and that's their only loss. Now, if you take that on the surface, you still may think, oh, they're probably on the outside looking in. But see, that's assuming that you're going to have a bona fide SEC champ, a bona fide Big Ten champ in Oklahoma, whatever the case may be, and it doesn't always work out that way. It may But it doesn't always work out that way. And keep in mind, even if it does work out that way, it's a razor-thin margin. So if you have a mess elsewhere, I'm just saying, you could have this crazy scenario where two teams from what is perceived to be the weakest conference in America are knocking on the door of the playoff. That would be crazy. That would be sneaky. You asked me for sneaky. Another one is Penn State. I've gone over this before. Now, they're going to be ranked in everyone's top 10. So I don't think on the surface that sounds crazy. But I think that, just like I said with North Carolina, aside from the classical route, the typical route of winning the conference and you're in, I think they could also be one of those programs. In fact, I think they're the most likely program this year to make the playoff without winning their conference for a lot of the same reasons I just mentioned with North Carolina. And Texas a and ms is a team that you won't probably hear me predicting to go to the playoff, but I don't think it would be the wildest occurrence in history. They've got a much more favorable schedule this year. Their first game where they'll probably be an underdog is at Auburn. It's in the middle of the year. And outside of that, they got two very tough games to end the season. They go to Alabama and then they've got LSU at home. Now here's what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is when you play in the SEC West, you got room for a loss. And what could happen here is you could have a situation where A&M goes to Alabama and they lose to the eventual SEC champion, Alabama Crimson Tide. Let's just say, this is not a prediction. Let's just say, you could have a situation there where a and is taking the route Bama has had to take a couple times. They got one loss. It just so happens to be to the SEC champ or a team that goes to Atlanta and their resume is still really good, better than some conference champs. Could Texas A&M sit there? If they beat LSU in the last week of the season, let's say, could they be there? waving their hands saying, how about us? How about us? I think those three would be sneaky, but I don't think that I don't think any of those three would just be so crazy that you'd say, nope, wake me up when this is over. I must be dreaming. Uh, Joanna, an interesting question here. Joanna on uh, Twitter, favorite song from the seventies, eighties and nineties. She wants one song from each decade. Believe it or not. I came up with the list in 10 seconds. My favorite song from the 70s is also my favorite song of all time. It is Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Engineering perfection. Unbelievable. My favorite song from the 80s is a song called Missing You by John Waite. I think it was pretty famous. When I think of 80s sound, uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears and Missing You by John Waite, those two songs, as soon as you hear the first 10 seconds, those songs Encapsulate perfectly what the 80s sound is to me. In the 90s, it's kind of weird. The 90s, I think, are an insanely underrated decade for music, just incredibly underrated. You got to keep in mind, I am anywhere from five to 15 years old in the 90s. Well, four to 15, I don't know how that works. Anyway, I was born in 1985. So Uh, The Matchbox 20, I thought was a phenomenal band that did not get their just due in the nineties until you fast forward 15 years and everything's trash. And you look back in retrospect and you say, you know, Matchbox 20, uh, they were pretty good. It's just that in 1998, Matchbox 20 was being compared to like Led Zeppelin from 20 years earlier and Led Zeppelin, they were not necessarily, but they were still really good So Matchbox 20, Goo Goo Dolls, Third Eye Blind, I was a big fan. I thought the 90s were the best decade for country music. ton of country music acts I loved. But there's a song. This has a lot more to do with memory framework than anything else. Memory framework, if you're familiar with the concept, is just that thing where if you see something or if you hear something, it's attached firmly to a memory in your mind of something else. And they're just kind of meshed together. Like you have a song that reminds you of a person or a place. Well, I got a song from the 90s that so vividly reminds me of a place that it's become one of my favorites. The song is You Were Meant For Me by Jewel. It was a pretty big song in the late late 90s, about the time Alanis set was big and whatnot. And the stretch of road that it takes me to is a stretch towards the elementary school that I attended in fifth grade, at least, New Mountain Hill Elementary. It's right there in um, Harris County. And there's just this stretch of road I think because that song was so big when I was in fifth grade and in our carpool every morning, we would hear the song on the way to school that it just sort of got burned into my mind. But it's the most vivid piece of memory framework that I have in my mind. It's so random. It makes no sense. It is a song by Jewel and it is the carpool on the way to elementary school in fifth grade. Was that the direction, Joanna, that you thought I was going to go? Probably not. Uh, Podcast review, Jeremiah 7803. Where do you see Alabama in five years when Saban retires? Uh, I think Mario Cristobal is going to be the head coach there. I think they'll still be one of the best programs in America. That was very succinct. Tanya, you could probably cut that one, man. We had like 15-second VOD there. Uh, Let's move it on. Why isn't LSU considered a dynasty if we've won three titles in 15 years and we've played for four? We have the second most titles since the year 2000. Also, don't ever wear anything other than a white t-shirt. It's your trademark. Thank you, Sims. Some people call me a flood victim. Some people say I'm too lazy to wash clothes or buy clothes. And to be honest with you, I think accusations two and three are probably true. However, I had someone ask me earlier this week about the white t-shirt. And here's what I told them. I told them, there's a purpose. There's a reason. There's a story. Behind that white T-shirt. But not all stories are meant to be told. Just know that if it stands out enough for you to notice, then that just means it adds a little bit more flavor and one more unique layer to our brand here. And when I say our brand, I mean our brand because it's as much yours as it is mine. And that's a good thing. So white T-shirt's going to stay. As for LSU and a dynasty, uh, on the surface, I think the stats you threw out say dynasty. But then past the surface, I don't think LSU has been a dynasty. I think they've been a really good program for an extended period of time. And if these three titles would have come within a span of about five or six years, then I think, yeah, we would be talking dynasty. But think about what we said here. You got three championships in the last 15 years. That's true. But they were 03, 07, and 19. 03 and 07 – and 19. There are three different coaches, first off. Secondly, 03 and 07, that's a different world. I mean, people think about the 07 to the 19 stretch and think about think about how different college football is and think about how different the program is. I just think that you have three walls. Like when I think about the, the history of LSU, the recent history of LSU, I build a wall between Saban and Miles, and I build a wall between Miles and Orgeron. And the bottom line is In any of those three compartments, there's only one championship. Now, what Ed Orgeron could do is he could run off a little stream here where they are called a modern-day dynasty, but I don't look at the past 15 years of LSU and call them a dynasty. I call them a really, really good program. I wouldn't call that a dynasty. I don't think the domination, the level of domination has been there to the degree that you would need. Like Alabama, that's domination. Alabama's run off a string where they have been insane. They've won, he's won five championships there. Nick Saban has, uh, had won five in the last decade. I mean, cause he won one in what? Oh, nine, 11, 12, 15, and 17. That right there is a dynasty. And number one recruiting classes virtually every year, pumping more kids into the first round of the NFL draft than they've lost games. Think about how insane that is. Nick Saban has more first round draft picks than losses at Alabama how's that even, that's not even possible on Xbox, let alone in real life. So that's a, it's a good program. LSU has been a solid program. There are extra steps you got to take to be a dynasty. All right, let's move on here. Hawk fan for life in the email inbox. I love late kick. I was born and raised in Iowa. I'm a Hawkeyes fan who lives in Texas. Even as a big 10 loyalist, I acknowledge SEC dominance What will it take for schools in the Big Ten besides Ohio State to match the SEC effort? I'm glad you asked it that way because I don't think it's an effort deal. I really don't. I don't think it's an effort deal. To say it's an effort deal would suggest that they're not trying as hard outside of Columbus, Ohio. They're not trying as hard in Ann Arbor, Michigan as they are in Athens, Georgia. And I really think they are. I just think that there are, I don't, you know what? There are probably different shades of ways to answer this question because I don't think there's any one area where there are just these 15 blinking red lights saying, here's the problem, here's the problem. I don't think the coaching staff, let's say at Michigan, I'm just picking Michigan out of the blue, the coaching staff there isn't quite as good as it is at Georgia. And the support staff isn't quite as big as it is at Georgia, and the access to recruiting isn't as good as it is at Georgia and maybe the level of go for broke buy-in amongst donors and whatnot is you know a little bit more rabid and a little bit more on tilt at Georgia than it is at Michigan, but there's no one area where it's just solidly tilted ten to zero in favor of Georgia that's just a comparative analysis there because neither of those programs have won national championships, but they're both really good. They're both in the top three at any given year of their conference. I don't think it's an effort thing. I just really, when you get the right pieces in place like they have at Ohio state, you just appreciate it because that's not normal. It's not normal to have all that coalesce. Kyle from PTS. This is in the podcast review. Was Tyler Simmons on side in the 17 national championship game? What difference did it make in the outcome? Well, of course he was onside. Uh, there was also a false start that wasn't called on the Alabama side of things. I don't even know if the play should have happened. Uh, I don't know what what effect it had on the outcome. I have no clue. I never even. I hear my Georgia buddies ask me that all the time. I don't even know how to entertain that. You know, there's this question of if you were to change one thing in history would everything else have played out subsequently just like it did? And of course the answer is no. So you change one thing, maybe you change everything. Like you could have, you could have had Georgia block that punt and Alabama go on to score touchdowns on their next four possessions. For all I know, I have no clue, but I did answer the question. Uh, Let's go Dylan here. Email inbox. I paused episode 29 of late kick live right around 1430 When you were talking about how Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia have full buy-in. Oh, man, we just talked about this. And that's what it takes to get the results that they have. What are other programs that you believe also have that level of buy-in? And does this generally come from the head coach or the AD? Uh, There's only one more, uh, two more probably. I think Oklahoma has it. I think that Ohio State has it. Very short list. Extremely short list. I think it is still TBD at Texas A&M. I think LSU has this now. This is very recent. I think since they made the move at Athletic Director with Scott Woodward, I believe all the boxes are checked there now. You ask, is it a head coach thing? Is it an AD thing? It's everything. It's all of the above. There has to be a singular focus. If you're asking, what does it mean to be fully all in? It's more than a slogan. It's more than a poster on the wall, like I talked about earlier. It is a singular, razor sharp focus and everyone's on board with it. When you walk in the building and you ask the janitor or the head coach, hey, what is the goal? Like, what are you trying to do here? Everyone's messaging is clear. Everyone's on the same wavelength. There's no side effort, side deals. There's no ulterior motive. There's no power struggle. And this is what surprises people a lot of times to find out. One of the, one of the perks of being in the kind of section of this business I'm in is you get to talk to a lot of people behind the scenes and you find out with the power structure, even around a lot of major programs, there are people who have access because of their political prowess or, or financial prowess and they value that power and access more than they would value that program winning. If they can have that program win and they maintain their status, they're fine with it but there are a lot of quote-unquote power players around some major programs that would much rather sit there and watch eight and four happen as long as they are at least with a hand on the steering wheel. I know that sounds shocking to a lot of people. You probably haven't experienced how drunk power makes you feel. Once you experience it, then you understand if someone were to tell you, hey, we can succeed, but you got to give some of this power up. Well, does that really feel like success to you? And sadly, for a lot of people, the answer is no. That's why it's so rare. That's why you were able, and I was able to list the number of programs that truly fit that description on pretty much one hand right now. And that's usually the way it is. Tracy in the email inbox, help me understand the whole infatuation the media has with Dan Mullen. Some people are asking the question, will Kirby Smart come under scrutiny or scrutiny as being overrated if he doesn't win a championship or if he loses to Florida this year? Mullen hasn't come close to winning a championship. He hasn't beaten Kirby on the field. His recruiting prowess is average. His coaching isn't as superb as the media makes it out to be. The reason he has to be, or the reason he has to do more with less is because he can't recruit. And this should be factored into your qualifications As an elite coach, even with the coaching turnover and players who are no longer at Georgia, why are media types ignoring how much Florida lost with nowhere near the depth on its roster? Tracy, let me be blunt with you. Most people, not all, a lot of people predicted the outcome of the SEC East this year before they ever even looked at a roster. Here's what they knew. They knew Georgia lost a quarterback. They knew Florida had a quarterback coming back. And they knew they wanted Florida to win the East this year. Not because they're Florida fans, necessarily, but because they just want something different. No one wants to see the same program win every year. See, you're you're asking, what's the infatuation with Dan Mullen? I don't necessarily know that there's an infatuation. Here's how I read the room right now. I read the room that a lot of people, because they're bored with the current state of affairs in the SEC East, they just want a different outcome which means they have to have Florida win because they think Florida is the only viable contender in the East, and I probably agree with them this year. And that means they become Dan Mullen fans, at least for a year. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. If Florida wins the East this year, then moot point. But if Georgia wins the East, or if anyone not named Florida wins the East this year, watch how quickly they turn on Dan Mullen. I talked about this on Late Kick Live the other night. It's a very advantageous, and dangerous time in Dan Mullen's career. I think this will be the most pressure pressure-packed season of his career. And here's the reason. He is in rarefied air right now. He's walking a tightrope that's high enough above the ground that he can't afford to fall off. There's no safety net under him. He's got a situation where his quarterback looks to be a plus position group compared to Georgia. It looks like his coaching staff, the continuity that they maintained is a plus relative to Georgia's uncertainty because they're bringing in new pieces and they lost spring. It looks like their schedule, especially the cross-division games, that's a plus compared to Georgia. So they got a lot of pluses. And my point is, that means they could get it done this year. And that's the opportunity. Here's the danger. If they don't get it done this year, the number one question will become, Well, if not this year, then when? His own fan base will be asking it and the aforementioned members of the media that you're talking about will be asking it. So it could be a high-risk, high-reward proposition in 2020 for Dan Mullen. Tyler on Twitter, best places to eat in Georgia? This is a good question. I was talking to Rusty Manziel. I think Rusty Manziel has probably been in every county in the state of Georgia. He works for the Dogs 24-7 site and he gets around a lot to high schools and whatnot in the state of Georgia. And he asked me one time, he found out I was from Harris County, which is just north of Columbus. It touches the Chattahoochee River. He asked me, hey, man, you ever been to Hunter's Pub? And I just laughed, have I been to Hunter's Pub? Hunter's Pub is a place that is just off the I-185 exit in Hamilton, Georgia. That is the county seat of Harris County for those unfamiliar, which would be 99.9% of you. And there's a place named Hunter's Pub It is like 15 seconds off the interstate, but yet you don't really see it unless you're looking for it. They don't put signs up. They don't have one of those uh, food on the next exit. You know, they don't have themselves listed. It's one of those places that people from Harris County hope that you don't realize is there, but sometimes passers through do realize it's there. Incredible food, steaks like you would not believe. Sometimes you don't even need a knife to cut them. Really, really good. And I'll tell you another place, and this is like, just out of this world, wouldn't believe it until you tried it. You go down one more exit in Harris County. I'm giving you a lot of stuff that's close to home. You go down one more exit, there's a Chevron. It's the Highway 315 exit in Fortson, Georgia, the Mulberry Grove exit. And, um, there's a Chevron there. And there's a restaurant attached to the Chevron. Now, I'm about to pitch gas station food to you as one of the best places in Georgia. But I'm asking you, don't knock it until you try it. The breakfast biscuits they have there are insane. I don't know who they contract with to make them. But if you didn't know you were in a Chevron, you would slap me in the face if I told you that's gas station food. No, it's in a gas station and it's food, but it's not gas station food. There's another place in Warm Springs called the Bullock House highly highly recommend it Uh, we're going to take a quick break here and when we come back oh man i've got one about miami it hit the nail on the head from elijah he is saying what i've never had a miami fan say to me that i totally agree with passion drive and patience All right, we're back here. Late Kick Extra continues. Oh, I love this from Elijah. I just love it. I've never heard this from a Miami Hurricanes fan, but it's what I've always thought about the program. I'm going to preface here a little bit because it was a pretty long-winded email, which I'm fine with. Elijah says, I grew up as the Apex fan of the Miami Hurricanes, and no other human being hurt more when they lost or rejoiced more when they won. It's been a tough couple of decades here. I still love the U with all of my heart. I am of the very, very strong opinion that the nostalgia of Miami and their legacy is poisoning the process of moving the program forward. I believe the biggest two contributors are both fans and former players. To be clear, the fan base is the primary protagonist. Their naivete, how about that? Ignorance, frustration, they fuel the fire the most. The players, at least from my point of view, are more frustrated than anything. I don't think they will ever completely rope off South Florida from Daytona to Orlando like they used to. Miami will never celebrate and dance perversely while backflipping and throwing up the U with their hands like they used to. Miami's not the same. They're never going to be the same. The sooner people accept that fact, the better it'll be for the program. This doesn't mean Miami will never win national titles again. On the contrary, they have everything they need in order to do that, except a modernized program. Listen, Elijah, I totally agree with you, dude. I totally agree with you. I did a segment last year when Late Kick was still independent. And I said, culture and tradition is nice. It's great. But here's the bottom line. There's a formula to win. And the formula that works in Clemson, South Carolina, works just as readily in Miami, Florida. Everyone wants to ask when uh, Michigan, let's say, since I was talking about them earlier, or Penn State, if Penn State were to be on the cusp this year, they would say, Oh man, is Penn State ready to break through into the college football playoff conversation? Are they ready to lock down the Big Ten? If Miami started to roll this year, they'd ask, Is the swagger back? Like there's some different formula to win at Miami than there is elsewhere. There's not. There's not. That stuff is really cute. It makes for good storytelling. There's a way to win. There are principles and there are values that you need in a program. To win and they apply across the board that's not saying that every program has to look robotic there are things about the culture of miami that are obviously totally different than penn state i'm not saying that i'm not saying get rid of that that's what makes college football great but if you think that you need a lot of what was glorified in, for example the uh you 30 for 30 documentaries if you think that's what wins that's icing on the cake guys that's not the cake that's the seasoning on the steak. That's not the steak. You think you're going to win with seasoning. Some of you think we just got to have more seasoning. No, you don't. You got to have the meat. You got to have steak. That's how you win. Miami's got to have the steak. So Manny Diaz, is he the steak instead of the seasoning? That was a really good question. I didn't know I get that fired up about it, but that was a really good question there. Julie, in the email inbox, I heard you say the other day, you felt like Alabama likely... Had the best player in the nation returning for 2020. Just wondering what you think LSU's odds are when facing Alabama. Yeah, I said this about Jalen Waddle. Now, obviously, I know that Jalen Waddle is not going to be as important in terms of a point value for Alabama in a given game as Justin Fields will be for Ohio State, Trevor Lawrence will be for Clemson, etc. I understand that. Let's say non-quarterbacks. The reason I think Jalen Waddle. Is a guy who's higher for me even than Jamar Chase, who is a consensus number one wide receiver in the country and number one wide receiver projected in next year's NFL draft. It's because I think Jalen Waddle's more versatile. Waddle's going to be your returner. Waddle's going to be obviously a star wide receiver for you. I don't know that there's a faster player in major college football than Jalen Waddle or a more electric and explosive player, but also I think they're going to use him very creatively this year. Alabama's not hurting for running backs, but I think a lot of direct snap situations will be in the playbook for Alabama with Jalen Waddell. I think they look at the way that they underutilized Kenyon Drake and need to say never again. We got a guy like Jalen Waddle here for one more year. Let's make sure we squeeze every ounce of potential out of him. Now, as for LSU's odds, LSU's got good odds against Alabama. They play him at home. Not that that's ever meant anything in that series, but I there's no reason to, to have doubt about your program. Listen, You don't know what you're going to be this year, but you don't know what Alabama is going to be yet either. As last year showed us, a whole lot, and I mean a whole lot, can change between now and when those teams play. Jeff, in the email inbox, if COVID-19 disrupts finances of schools, could you see realignment taking form? I'm looking at it from a travel standpoint. Budgets may still be massive for that to happen. However, if it does occur, which schools could you see moving from one conference to another? If power five schools split from the NCAA, could you see realignment forming in that situation? If neither of these scenarios arises, could you see realignment happening again? I think a lot of these things could happen. I don't think that they're going to be precipitated necessarily from COVID-19, Jeff. I think maybe they are detached in a lot of cases. I, and listen, we're all going through this at the same time for the first time. So it could, but at the same time, I've heard some unequivocal no's from Power Five conference commissioners to this very question that you're asking. Now, could we see realignment in the future? Could there be ripple effects that catch up with programs or conferences two years down the road that were triggered from this pandemic? I guess like that certainly could happen. The way that this story is going to play out, the fi- whatever the final chapters are in the how college football dealt with COVID-19 book, whatever they're going to be, I don't think they're very predictable right now. From Mac on Twitter, if Notre Dame was in the ACC for football, how much different would the perception of the ACC be? It would be very different, Mac. It would be, I mean, let's just say, what if Virginia Tech became a top 10 program again? They're in the ACC. What if Miami returned to their former glory? What if Florida State return to their former glory. Just what if the ACC had one more top 10 caliber team? I think it'd be worlds different. That would be a 100% improvement on what you currently have there. So, I mean, it would be a big deal. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Carter on YouTube. What do you think will happen in Bama's backfield this coming season? Do you believe it can make their offense more diverse? Yes. Yeah, I do. Uh, Najee Harris. I was on the field for the Citrus Bowl when they played Michigan. And the way he ran, especially in the second half, was like a man possessed. And I'll tell you what it screamed to me. This is his final game. I mean, I would have bet you any amount of money. This is Najee Harris' final game. And then he announces he's returning. Uh, he is a monster. Trey Sanders, they were ultra excited about seeing him. Five-star running back, I believe, the number one running back in the 2019 cycle. And he got hurt in preseason last year. Uh, he will play a major role in their offense this year. Jace McClellan, the guy they took from Oklahoma out of Texas, they took from Oklahoma. Brian Robinson's there for his 15th year. Roydell Williams is a true freshman running back that I don't think is just an automatic redshirt candidate. A lot of these guys are good out of the backfield. A lot of them are good in a variety of different roles. So yes, uh, there's only one football to go around, but they have infinite potential at their running back position. And they have probably the best offensive line in college football this year. One of, if not the best offensive lines in college football. So, yeah, I, I, I know they lose the best quarterback in the history of that program into a tongue of Iloa. I just think it's a fool's errand to be expecting and predicting Alabama's offense to take this drastic step back this year. John, in the email inbox, I know they're not the most interesting or dazzling of teams, but after picking up the transfer of Tyrell Shavers, And having an experienced, talented running back in Kylan Hill, as well as KJ Costello at running or at quarterback, rather, I feel like with Mike Leach's offensive expertise, Mississippi State could be underappreciated this year and catch your eye. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Yeah, uh, everything you said could be true, John. Here's what else could be true. I'm not trying to be combative here. You presented the glass half full, so I'll just take the glass half empty. All of what you said could be true, but what could also be true is, Think about how many new pieces you just introduced into the equation, along with a new head coach and thus a new offensive system that is not necessarily one that's picked up overnight. I mean, think about how important timing, rhythm, repetition, all of these fundamentals are to the success of that offense. And keep in mind, you're not dealing with top-shelf talent. Not that Mississippi State is terrible, not that they lack talent, they're not on the same level as necessarily Alabama is or LSU, you get the drift there. So that's one advantage you don't have. Uh, Another advantage you don't have is time being on your side. And the third disadvantage is this is not 2005 in the SEC. This is 2020. No one is taken by surprise by teams throwing the ball a lot in 2020 in the SEC. Virtually everyone's doing it down here. To be honest with you, I think maybe the approach that Jeremy Pruitt could be taking at Tennessee, could end up looking more radical because I think it's going to be a lot more fundamental and it's going to be a lot more old school. And that's not what anyone does here anymore. So I think if it were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Mike Leach would be a lot more concerning to other programs than he will be this time around. That doesn't mean he can't win. He's just not going to do it surprising anyone. Let me say it that way. Rob email inbox with Bo Pelini taking over for Dave Aranda and a talented defense. What will LSU's defense look like? Uh, A couple of names. I'm really excited about Jabril Cox. Obviously that's the transfer linebacker from North Dakota state. They're really excited about him. I'm really excited about him. Obviously Derek Stingley. It was really big. They got Jacoby Stevens to come back, but up front, uh, Ika, you can choose which first name you want to use from him. Tyler Shelvin, like guys like that. This is a season for those guys to make their mark. They, they have questions, but everyone has questions. 25% of your roster on average overturns every year. Um, I'll be honest with you. I've still got to see Bo Pelini put a dominant defense on the field in modern day college football. Like the last time that he was doing it versus now, a lot has changed. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that I, I think the game's passed him by. I just, the way that you did it at a high level in 07 is not the way that you would go about doing it in 2020. Even the best defensive minds in the game have had to evolve. Bo Pelini would be no different. So um, that's one of the things that I'm really interested to watch this year. Mac on Twitter, uh, another question here. Commonly, we see Tier 1 programs consistently win at the top level. While they all have great coaches, it's easier to win there than at programs like Minnesota with P.J. Fleck or Utah with Kyle Whittingham or Virginia with Brock Mendenhall. My question is, how do you judge how successful a coach actually is or coaches who don't win national championships maybe, but they bring programs out of irrelevance? Well, I always ask two questions to this. Number one, I ask, what are you doing relative to what you have? And what are you doing at that program relative to What history says is normal for that program. I think the perfect case study for this was always when Chris Peterson was at Boise state, when Peterson was at Boise state, I was in the South, I'm still in the South, but I was in the South at the time. And they'd knock on the door of the BCS every year. And, you know, anytime someone said, Ooh, could Boise compete with sec teams? That was always a foolish question, but it was foolish for different reasons than people thought. A lot of people would say, oh, if Chris Peterson had to play an SEC schedule, oh, he would get smoked and his roster would be depleted. Well, of course it would have been, but that's irrelevant. If Chris Peterson was playing in the SEC, he wouldn't be recruiting in Boise, Idaho. He would have been down here somewhere with equal resources to everyone and access to talent that everyone else has, but he was in Idaho. You don't compare Chris Peterson at Boise State to someone at Florida, You compare them to the other teams in their conference and think about how long they ran roughshod over their conference out there with no discernible advantage. In fact, I would argue relative to a program like Fresno State being in California, if you're in Idaho, you have a big disadvantage. What do people know you for? You got a blue field. Great. Like, You know how hard it is to get kids to come to Idaho when they have other options closer to the West Coast? And yet, Even when all things weren't equal, if anything, he was disadvantaged. Chris Peterson dominated everyone out there, which screamed to me he would dominate anywhere if he was given anywhere close to a fair shot. That's how you spot good coaches. Did Chris Peterson ever win a national championship? No, he didn't. I always thought he was one of the very best in America. There were times where, for example, people would ask me for my list of best head coaches in America, I would put Chris Peterson above guys who had won national championships. Let's keep it going here. Hayden on Twitter. What do you think of the hires Memphis has made? And what do you think about Memphis in general? Uh, We had a feature with Ryan Silverfield, actually. I think we posted it today Now I'm recording this Tuesday and it was just kind of an evaluation you series feature. It was with Barton Simmons and he was talking about offensive line play He walks into a very advantageous position. I'll tell you that. I mean, that's a program that is set up for success. Uh, They, well, I mean, you know the schedule. I think they open with Arkansas State this year, but they do go to Purdue this year. Um, They have a situation where, you know, they're not Power Five, but yet the precedent has been set to where you can at least compete if everything lines up the right way. And if even if you're not competing, like they have branded themselves Power Six in the AAC. And it's very smart. It's very savvy branding. So Ryan Silverfield, I think, is in a really good position here. I mean, what you have to ask yourself is, how does he view the Memphis program? I asked this question with Fickle at Cincinnati. I asked this question with whoever happens to be at Central Florida at any given point. Can you get a guy there that views it as a destination job instead of a stepping stone job? That's the big question. That's the difference in being G five and Power Five. That's one of the big questions that you always have to ask yourself. Chris on Twitter: Why does a coach like Jimbo Fisher seem to get a pass on his offensive philosophy, and others don't? Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, before he adopted or he adapted rather, Pat Fitzgerald, Les Miles—they've all been raked over the coals for their man ball approach, but we never hear much about Jimbo. Oh, I think you hear quite a amount. Well, at least I've heard quite a fair amount of criticism. Chris, I think that people are willing to give him one more year. But if they take this opportunity that they have this year and they squander it away and they're eight and four or even nine and three, given what people expect out there with a veteran quarterback and your roster is as good as it's been in a long time and you still can't get out of your own way offensively, I think there'll be a lot of criticism. I really believe that. I, I've heard a fair amount of criticism about, maybe it's been whispered instead of screamed. That's maybe why, but I've heard a fair amount of criticism. golfer 60 YouTube. You talked about how coaching hot seats are a wash this season and that makes sense. But what about the other side of that coin? Is there any program that you feel like is ready to make a jump this season, like a four win improvement only to have that success, not be something lasting. I'm going to pause on that one. D golfer 60 from YouTube. I appreciate it. This is something I'm working on and it's a feature that I'm going to do coming up closer to the season. So bookmark that for me. Cause that's a really good question. Uh, Jay, In the YouTube section, comment section, does the addition of Felipe Franks help improve Arkansas program this season? Well, yeah, it helps improve the Arkansas program, but I'll tell you what really improves the Arkansas program is being able to have Barry Odom fall in your lap as your defensive coordinator and Kendall Bryles fall into your lap as your offensive coordinator. I mean, Sam Pittman struck gold there. With those coordinator hires, they've got a long way to go to even have a competitive roster. That, that roster is bad by SEC standards right now. And Felipe Franks is probably not going to change that. And a coordinator overnight's not going to change that, but they do have the right guys in the right positions on that coaching staff at least to be excited about. Steven, YouTube, last one for us here. As we all know, Mac Jones is a redshirt quarterback for Alabama. But what happens? To Bryce Young, that's the five-star true freshman, if Mac Jones goes for 4,000-plus yards and decides to come back for his senior year, is it transfer portal time, Stephen? Honestly, if Mac Jones were to have that kind of year, you're probably talking about the NFL with him. And you've seen how quickly quarterbacks can rocket up those kinds of mock drafts and whatnot with that kind of season. Um, you know what I would do? If I were around Alabama, I'd say bring that on. That's the kind of problem you want to have. That's the kind of thing a lot of people shy away from, and I've never understood why. You bring that on, man. I don't think it's going to happen that way necessarily, because I think Bryce Young is going to get enough playing time this year to understand that Ed ultimately is his job there. That's what I believe now. But either way, if if Mac Jones throws for or uh, yeah, if Mac Jones throws for four thousand yards this year, I think you've got a really good problem on your hands. All right. So we went through this as quickly as possible, being respectful of all the questions. If you want to get questions in, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at LateKickJosh. Hit me up in the podcast review section. You can submit questions there. I really, really beg you, guys. I don't want to beg. That's strong. I'll go ahead and beg you. Hey, I'm begging you. Give us five-star reviews there. We really love that. And we will see you in a number of different places. Every Thursday and Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And you can hear the Late Kick Extra podcast here every Wednesday. And we also upload every show that we do on YouTube as a podcast. And we've had some really good numbers here, really good traction. And I mean, it's June, guys. So imagine what it's going to be like when the season gets here, right? Until then, I really appreciate you guys listening. Really appreciate the support. I'm Josh Pate. This has been the Late Kick Extra podcast. Take care.